Today's episode is supported by Vivo Barefoot, whose mission is very close to my heart. There's something incredibly powerful about feeling the ground beneath your feet. It's more than just like walking or running. It's about forming a connection with the earth, a connection that most modern footwear has unfortunately severed. Vivo Barefoot aims to mend this disconnect by making footwear that's wide, thin and flexible, enabling natural movement. Born from a long lineage of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot carries a rich heritage of craftsmanship and a deep understanding of what makes footwear truly beneficial for us. Enjoy the discount code HARVEST15. Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. I think the, the, the future of Buddhism will really depend Uh, depend largely on what happens to the traditionally Buddhist countries like Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, Tibet, and Korea, uh, Vietnam. And there, I think there is something that the Buddhist countries can learn from the vision that His Holiness has, which is to really kind of um, incorporate the basic insights from science into the Buddhist tradition so that we don't get stuck in the past. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Kaplankaya with Thupten Jinpa and Bob Thurman. Jinpa and Bob were born several tens of thousands of kilometers apart and yet have so many points in common. They are eminent Tibetan Buddhist scholars, specialists in the subject of compassion They are part of the very close relations of the Dalai Lama, and they were both monks, although they have now a family. And finally, they do everything that's in their power to preserve the Tibetan Buddhist culture. Today, we'll discuss with Bob and Jinpa their relationship, what the future of Buddhism for them, and geopolitics. Although Jinpa met Bob when he was 12, he was then a monk, and Bob a former monk, They are both busy men and never had the opportunity to do a podcast interview together. We were all very excited and as they're sharing plenty of anecdotes that are actually more deep and impactful stories, I decided to make a different kind of episode today. It's going to be an hour and with no interruptions. I really hope you're going to enjoy it. How well do you know each other? Oh, well, <laughs> well, how well do we know ourselves? <laughs> you know, that also could be a question. And uh, I, one thing that I can say that I know about Chimbala is that in, in Tibetan culture, you have to understand that as many hours as you have spent in the presence of the Dalai Lama, it's considered that you get rid of like lifetimes of bad karma and you have it's a tremendous fortune. And Jimbala is way ahead of me because <laughs> although I've known the Dalai Lama longer since before when he was only a little child, Jimbala, since I'm older, but he has spent so much time with his holiness, the Dalai Lama. 
I think, like years of so if you add it up all the hours. And so he's very, very lucky <laughs> in that sense. He's sort of a clean slate. Like he went and he jumped in the Ganges or he jumped in Lake Anasarova or something. And he's purified of all his past sins. And I'm still very weighed down by them. You know? So, so that's, that's a really, that's amazing thing. You know? And we, we also share that we're both ex-monks. Yes. And uh, his, I think his holiness was a little bit distressed in both cases about that. <laughs> Because he's very serious about people maintaining their celibacy and the monastic thing. But he forgave us both, I think. <laughs> right now, right? He did. Thank but you. Uh, but uh, we went through a, a process. The same, yeah, right. the same process. Well, I've, um, I've known Ofbor for a long time. Uh, the first time I saw him was in 1971. I was uh, 12 or 13. You know, it really struck me because I was one of the very few uh, young Tibetan monks who had some facility with English. And um, I saw this tall American guy speaking fluent Tibetan and quite loud, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> in Dharamsala. It really struck me. And then um, immediately, you know, the, you know, he seemed to be already quite famous because he had been a monk. And uh, I think you were a student of Tararamche. Uh, Yes. Yeah. So, um, so the word was, and and people seem to already know him. But uh, I've got to know Bob closely since I began uh, became his holiness's translator. And of course, you know, one of the things that um, you know, all the Tibetans of my generation, particularly the monastic community, the reason why we know Bob is because Bob translated uh, one of the most influential philosophical texts in Tibetan language by Tsongkhapa, Tangele Shenyebo. And um, you published it in the early 80s, actually, late 70s. So yes. I think, um, so there is a, a huge admiration for Bob for that and and also kind of a, a sense of awe because this text is considered to be so difficult and here is someone who has translated it into another language. And of course, Bob has been a close disciple of his holiness, one of the most vocal, you know, I mean, you even wrote a book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters. So... And uh, so Bob and I are both kind of colleagues in being uh, close disciples of our same guru, His Holiness. And, 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 you know, like Bob, I also dedicate a large part of my life as a service to, you know, His Holiness. So I think there is a lot of shared affinity and um, sense of closeness. And I got to know Bob much more clo closely after I became a Dalai Lama's translator as, and also an academic and what do you, if you want to share with me, what do you usually talk about when you see each other? What are you, what's your favorite topic of a conversation? Well, it's mostly about texts, yes. you know, um, because Bob has, um, you know, I, although I've been in academia, but I don't, I never chose the path of a full academic uh, professorship. But Bob has been a professor in Buddhist studies and Tibetan studies for a long time. So Bob has a very long line of uh, students who are now in their 40s and early 50s, and they are also doing a lot of work. So, you know, just discussions about who is doing what texts and what has come out. And so that's, a, that's an important part of the conversation. And also, you know, like myself, Bob has also been very interested in Buddhism and science dialogue. You know, one of the things that interests us is the history of uh, science and religion dialogue and how for Christianity particularly, it has been quite damaging. You know, science has been, has a negative impact. But on the other hand, what does that mean for the Buddhist tradition? You know, because science tends to be quite hegemonic. You know, when it gets into a conversation, science is very powerful. It's, you know, imperialistic. 
it tends to kind of impose its worldview. But on the Buddhist side, what would that mean? So that's interesting conversations mm -hmm. we have. Yeah. What kind of special uh, memory together would you like to share? We both uh, serve His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama, in our different ways. And um, we are both concerned with the future of, of the Buddhism and, of, our, and of, our, of course, our families and of Tibet. And so we share all those things. And actually, that book that um, Jambala mentioned, the Drangele Shenyingbo of Tsongkhapa, which was some, sometimes called the Iron Bow of Lama Tsongkhapa. And, um, you know, in the middle of it, something you can't, no one can draw the bow. And I, it's not my fault that I translated <laughs> I was ordered to by my Mongolian teacher, who was a specialist in that book, actually, from someone called Geshe Jimba, actually, in uh, Gomang, who was considered a great scholar of that, although a very humble kind of person. I don't know if you ever heard of him or no. what his other name was. Yeah. I don't even know that. Anyway, we're going to work on it together, I think, in the future. I've decided uh, he's going to I'm going to ask him to correct some issues. <laughs> and perhaps we will have a discussion of terminology and things like that. Translators always get deeply involved in that sort of thing. And, uh, but I think it would be very interesting for me and uh, for him. We're unfortunately, both of us are extremely busy. When we normally meet, he's usually very busy serving His Holiness, translating this and that, private things, public things. I'm also busy organizing something. Often I've been the host sometimes of them in different settings. So we're often quite busy. We don't, yeah, uh, this is unusual for us to have some, some sort of leisure like we're having here in, uh, in Kaplangaya, you know, where we kind of don't really, we're not really on duty in a way, you know? <laughs> And I hope you are going to enjoy other, you know? yeah? So I was very interested in asking him about his youth has quite an extraordinary story. And um, I always want to call him Rinpoche, which uh, means a precious one. And that's what you say to someone who's considered a formal reincarnation. Of course, everybody is a reincarnation from a Tibetan point of view, but a formal one, they have a special institution for that in Tibet. And um, I think he is one, but he, he's not formally one. And then he has a story about that, I think, which is quite interesting. How he got started around that time when, when we first met, actually, yeah, yeah. 1971, where he was in a certain track among Tibetan monks. He was, and I was a, an ex-monk and a little bit in a difficult situation in some ways because of that. Wife and two kids. We have a biography of the Dalai Lama we published, like a comic book. And we have a funny thing in that biography where His Holiness is standing somewhere and I'm coming in a car with my wife and two kids. And his holiness is standing over there, and he says to somebody, oh, here comes my monk. <laughs> <laughs> Which had never happened like that, I think. But, uh, but we just put it because it's kind of funny, you know. And, um, story. So anyway, I'm very interested in that, you know, because he was on a certain track. Uh, maybe you should tell it yourself. You were on a certain track for monk sure, monks, sure, and then sure. you had this inclination to join a different track, sure. which is not that easy to join, I think, sure, in sure. Tibetan things. So you had to do something special. So please tell us about that. Well, I mean, uh, one of the things that after Bob became a professor in America, he hosted several of important conferences for His Holiness. And I remember one which he hosted at Columbia um, between kind of modern science and philosophy and Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And um, Robert Nozick was there. He's a very, very influential Anglo-American philosopher. So Bob has really, you know, been very interested in this high-level intellectual kind of um, engagement between contemporary Western thought, science and philosophy on the one side, 
and um, you know Buddhism on the other. And um, and you actually, I read um, before when I was first serving His Holiness as his interpreter, I had a big learning curve because my English up until then was not formal English. I you know I left school after grade four, so I had no command of English. But then in Dharamsala, when I was a monk, you know, it so happened that the they were this was the, at the peak of hippie movement, and there were quite a lot of hippies in Dharamsala. So I took the opportunity to improve my English and learn. But when I then the monastery moved down to South India, where I had no access, so I then kept it up by reading and listening to BBC. So when I first began translating for His Holiness, my English wasn't that fluent. I mean, it was kind of okay, but it was very, very good. archaic because it was kind of bookish English. <laughs> um, so I started reading a lot. And one of the things that I read about was the conference you set up in Amherst. Yes, in His Holiness. it was the first mind science conference. Yeah. yeah, this was quite a while ago. I was in South India, so I, I read... You know, oh, yes. Yeah. So I read a bit of Bob's work as part of my preparation oh, okay. and education. That was 1984. Yeah, 1984, okay. yeah. So, uh, so the, the, you know, so I've always been very, you know, inspired and impressed by, you know, Bob's ability to bring the science and Buddhism and Western contemporary thought together and offering platforms to his holiness, you know. So talking about my, um, you know, my own background, um, I chose to become a monk at the age of uh, 11 and 10, actually. And uh, I had just finished grade four. And the reason why I wanted to become a monk was uh, I was so inspired by the two monastic teachers at my school. They were so kind, so compassionate. Among all the teachers, they had the best stories to tell, too. So I just wanted to be like them. So one winter when I went on vacation, I told my father, I don't want to go back. I want to become a monk. So I ended up joining the monastery that my father was a monk already because after my mother passed away, he had chosen to become a monk. And so I was at that monastery because I did not know there were different types of monastery. So this monastery turned out to be a very uh, ritual-based monastery, a lot of chanting, a lot of memorization, a lot of rituals. So it's a bit like kind of parish church where your role is to serve the needs of the ordinary families by doing rituals, healing, and so on. But I was intellectually restless, so eventually I needed to move out of that monastery to do a formal study. Yeah. So that's what Bob is talking about. He had to uh, run away. Uh, and uh, so... And, so you, you know, escaped the monastery. Eventually I did. <laughs> because the thing is, it was very difficult when the monastery particularly moved down to South India. I was the only monk, young monk who spoke English at that monastery which meant that many of the administrative chores like doing the shopping and, you know, keeping the books and, um, and doing correspondence for the monastery landed on me. And then uh, my father was there. My father, bless his heart, I mean, he, he, he was not the bravest person and he, his kind of um, aspirations for my life was very limited. He just wanted me to be successful in that small community. And this monastery is also a native monastery of my you know, birthplace. So there's a family connection as well. But I was um, not happy in that monastery because there was no intellectual challenge. And on top of that, you know, having to do all this administrative responsibility also made it kind of guilty for me to leave because I was doing something there. And if I leave, who's going to do it? 
And on top of that, my father was putting a lot of pressure on me to be successful in that monastery. All of this combined sort of it delayed my leaving that monastery. In the end, I did leave in, when I was 19 uh, and then joined finally. And when I left, I had to escape. I just couldn't, <laughs> you know, get a permission. Okay. And so I just ran. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I ran away, yeah. <laughs> And he joined the curriculum of sort of the, the Harvard or Princeton or something of the monasteries, Gandhan monastery. Yeah, then I went to an academic monastery, which is where I Very difficult curriculum. Form, yeah. So form you're both training. brilliant and quite uh, determined because the two of you know what you want and are uh, brave enough to make uh, decisions and uh, you want to take control. Do you say like that's something you have in common True. to take the control of True. your own life, True. which is not always yeah. easy? Yeah. And you both, you both made it. Yeah, it, looking back, it's also a little scary because there are moments in your life when you don't make that, if you hadn't made that step, taken that step, your life would be completely totally different. Totally different, yeah. So looking back, it's, uh, it's inspiring, but also it's a little scary because so much hinges on, the, on those circumstantial decisions that you make. Yeah. But I'm happy that, um, you know, when I chose to become a monk, I became a monk. And when I chose to leave, I also left the monastery. Yeah, that was I, the second I, major yeah, thing where yeah. he is unique among the high level geishas, what they call, which is like a super PhD, sort of postdoc kind of high level within that curriculum, which is a very difficult curriculum. But then he left there and went to Cambridge in England and got a Western PhD. That's also very unique. Yeah. What would you say is uh, each other's contribution to Buddhism? So, Jimpa, what is Bob's contribution to Buddhism? You've already mentioned the translation, the amazing, yeah. amazing translation. Well, Bob uh, has uh, initiated a major literary project in, uh, at Columbia, which is a translation of the major Indian Buddhist classics, contemporary language like English. So I think that, was, and also Bob's contribution is also the number of students he has produced, all of who are now producing it's students. You, yeah. So that's a, a major contribution. Um, and also um, establishment of Tibet House in New York as a primary kind of, you know, Tibetan cultural center uh, in North America. It's been, uh, it's, it's, it's actually, if you get a chance to, uh, to go and visit. You know, it's, it's, has joined the board of I've directors. Recently, yeah, I've recently joined, so the, joined the board. We're so pleased and proud No, no, Bob, Bob's contribution is, is a lot, yeah. Thank well, you. His Holiness asked me to do that because His Holiness is very interesting. He, both of us are in a, a complex position because His Holiness does not want to convert the world to Tibetan Buddhism, you have to understand. He is very clear about that. He has a theory about the world religions that people should keep their grandmother's religion sort of in principle. And then on the other hand, you, he, he likes Jubus and Chris Boos and Hindus, <laughs> which means people who sort of ritually or uh, socially, culturally, they stay with the family tradition to feel connected to the family, but then they learn from Buddhism, from the Buddhist sciences, from meditational sciences, they learn things and they enrich their tradition, but they keep it within the framework of the belief system of their sort of culture. 
And he, so, so it's very important. He's not a missionary sure, sure. in that sense to the world. Sure. So the Tibet House initiative that he started in different countries, initially in India, is to sort of show the reality of the Tibetan culture, which is an endangered culture, and to share its, cult, its wisdom and its incomplete immersion with the Buddhist tradition, but, but as Tibetans, you know, and not try to convert other people. And then he's told various popes and Muslim leaders in India and uh, Hindus and things and, and Jewish rabbis and, and um, not that he hopes they won't try to convert <laughs> Buddhists, you know, so people <laughs> will not have religious conflict in this time. Yeah. So we both, from our different perspectives and roles, are sort of treading that middle way, kind sure, of, isn't it? Sure. It's like a kind of middle way. And uh, Jimba Rinpoche, as I like to call him, <laughs> he's... Uh, he has a, he's younger and he will be carrying on that past where I will be able, I will not be able to be serving. I'm, I'm trying to retire and so on. So I'm really looking forward to his contribution because he touches both worlds in a different, his own way, but in an important way like that, I think. Is it what is needed because you're both making uh, Tibetan Buddhism shine around the world? Is it what is needed for uh, the future of uh, Buddhism? to preserve the culture? I think f the future of Buddhism will really de depend largely on what happens to the traditionally Buddhist countries like Thailand, Sri Lanka, Burma, Tibet, and Korea, uh, Vietnam. And there, I think there is something that the Buddhist countries can learn from the vision that His Holiness has, which is to really kind of um, incorporate the basic insights from science into the Buddhist tradition so that we don't get stuck in the past. And, and we know, for example, even from a kind of a biological world, the species that can't adapt to changes eventually die. And that applies also to cultures, cultures and civilizations that fail to adapt to changing environment and changing times will not survive. So Buddhism has You know, one, it's, it's a, one of the major world religion that has adapted to different countries, you know, like Tibetan Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism. So it has adapted to the changing times and needs. And today we are living in a contemporary world where predominant worldview is secular, scientific. You know, people will, when people think about evolution of the cosmos, they will look for science, but not in the religious texts, you know, unless you are, you know, kind of a very devout follower of a particular religion. Similarly, when people look at, you know, great forces in society, they will look at social sciences. So, but at the same time, for Buddhism to survive as a major force, it needs to do two things. One is in the traditional Buddhist societies, traditions themselves need to find a way to adapt to modernity. Any religion that fails to adapt to modernity is not going to survive very long. The secondly, you know, Buddhist traditions, like His Holiness uh, advises, need to look into their own resources and offer to the world practices, ideas, insights. That's what mm -hmm. Tibet House is doing. That's what Mind and Life is doing. And mm -hmm. that's what Compassion Institute is doing. That's what His Holiness shares when he travels across mm -hmm. the world, where he's bringing, digging deep into the resources of Buddhist tradition, and but offering it in this shared space 
not to convert people, but bringing yet another piece of knowledge, yet another piece of techniques, and with the idea that all of these are shared resources of humanity. So I think that if, if Buddhism needs able to do these two things, I think it will have a long future because, as I you know, said earlier, unlike many other religions, Buddhism has much less metaphysical aspects that obstructs it to adapt to modernity. For example, there is no concept of God in the creator, so Buddhism does not need to push that side. You know, there is the basic explanation in Buddhism is very similar to science, which is the law of causality. You know, many of the explanations of human experience and all of these are very natural, naturalistic. So from a kind of a philosophical point of view, Buddhism has much more ability to go hand in hand with a natural explanation that science offers. But the culturally is when it has to adapt. It has to adapt to modernity, you said, yeah. uh, and uh, to find their own practices. What about the monks? Uh, we know um, all the religions struggle a bit to recruit new monks. Sure, sure. It's difficult with the society. Sure. And you know that sure. because people want to have sure. modern life and sure. families. So uh, how do you combine having the need, maybe or not, to have like monasteries to keep... Uh, the teachings, and also uh, letting the people have a uh, modern life, enjoy a modern life? Well, I, th I think adaptation requires quite a lot of things. For example, you know, in the traditional Buddhist countries, issues of gender equality, issues of diverse sexual orientation, recognition of those, greater equality and less hierarchical structure, these are important forces of modern culture. And any tradition that fails to adapt is not going to survive. I mean, that's, that's, that's an important point. So we could see more women in the, that's yeah. a possibility? Okay. Those kind of things that, you know, the, those are important changes that needs to adapt. Okay. Similarly, with the monastic issue, you know, up until now, Buddhism has relied heavily on the presence of the monasteries of celibate monks as the custodians of the tradition. In principle, there is nothing intrinsic in that need There's no reason why, for example, like many of the knowledge of the monasteries can be shared to lay community. And we could also have a system where, like in Thailand, you know, monastic members can take vows for a set period of time, like 10 years or 15 years, and then leave. I mean, it's, it's conceivable. The, the opportunities for adaptations are there. But whether societies adapt or not is a different matter. Okay. And if we fail to adapt, the traditions will suffer. Do you think it's uh, why the um, other religions struggle because uh, they haven't adapted so much? I think the different religions will have different challenges when it comes to adapting to modernity. Where um, religions have struggled in the past, particularly Christianity, is on the doc doctrinal, you know, philosophical side of not taking science seriously. And by the time it was forced to take science seriously, the relationship has already been a negative one, confrontational one. So, but different religions will struggle in different areas. Um, you know, the, in Buddhism being a predominantly Asian religion, where it will struggle is more on the cultural side. You know, the Asian traditions tend to emphasize greater hierarchy in the structure. There's less rule for women. Gender or kind of, uh, sexual orientation is another area where Asian traditions will suffer, you know, struggle. So those are, you know, I think depending upon the cultural area, different religions will have different struggles. 
But the main point is that, I mean, you don't want to give in completely. If you look at history, for major institutions to survive, at the core of it, there needs to be a conservatism because you can't move wherever the wind Too is much. blowing. Yeah, okay. You know, they, at the core, there has to be a conservative spirit. And then adaptations need to happen on the edges. And by the time it reaches the center, it would have already turned into mainstream. And that's how nature, adaptation to nature occur. And we can look at nature as a good example. But what do you think about when Jinpa said like uh, Buddhism needs to survive, to adapt to modernity and uh, to have the practice that adapts to the world? What do you think? Do you have other ideas to preserve the Tibetan Buddhism? About Buddhism in the future? Yeah. Well, I think Buddhism, uh, I have a little bit sociological view about the role of monasticism in Buddhism. Maybe a little different, but as another (laughs) ex-monk... I went through a process where initially I learned so much from my wife and my child because I do have the unfortunate of being born as a male. And uh, males in this planet in the last few thousand years have been a little bit out of control, (laughs) let's face it. Patriarchy, even in India, even in Buddha's time, Buddha was a kind of rebelled against patriarchy. And the major institution of patriarchy worldwide is military. And the men go into, they're kind of monks. Soldiers are kind of monks. They shave their heads. They change their name. They have a uniform. They're ready to die. They put their life on the line. And of course, then naturally, they don't have a vow of celibacy. So then they loot and pillage and rape and do things in wars. But so people think of them just as lay people. But in a way, it's it's a monastic thing to be in the military. So I consider that Buddha's invention of monasticism, which he did, celibate monks, institutional antidote to the militarism of patriarchy. And he was reluctant to have too many women, not because women are not as capable or even more capable of becoming enlightened, but because he knew that patriarchs wouldn't tolerate releasing their servants, their daughters, who they would marry off to whoever they wanted, their caretakers, their nurses, their child bearers, to release them to be free lifelong uh, they, and to become fully educated, like uh, which the Buddhist monks are very much into education and so on. And so he was hesitant and actually he foresaw that when he did open the door to his ex-wife and his, his foster mother, who were leading the charge, it was like a stampede of the women wanting to get away from the patriarchal Indian family system, where they were really subordinate, as still are, actually. I think the Tibetan uh, extraordinary element in its culture and the miracle that His Holiness did, in spite of you and me, (laughs) is he, in a destitute refugee population, he somehow encouraged, like Jambala initially wanted to be a monk, He didn't want to go out and get a driver and become a taxi driver and make money and be like, a, you know, have a Tibetan economy in, in exile there. He wanted to be a monk. And thousands of young Tibetans want to be monks. And this creates a kind of core thing of where what is the horizon of conquest for the male, you know? When you're celibate, the horizon of conquest is yourself, your ego, and your egotism. Your ideal is to become a gentle person. 
it's more sort of, you know, they actually are quite fierce intellectually, Tibetan monks. They debate because they're very scientific and rationalist in practice. But so, so that's the thing. So in the modern period, I think, therefore, Tibet is unique, its culture in the, the Buddhist world, except maybe for Mongolia, which it influenced in a similar way, in that it more or less over about five centuries demilitarized what had been a conquest-oriented culture, where they conquered people around them. They were very fierce warriors, actually, the Tibetans, until they got into Buddhism. And then it took time for them to sort of, where the, the profession of being a soldier was no longer a way of climbing socially and advancing, but the profession of being a monastic was, was a way of advancing. So I, I call it the, where, where Buddhism was most mainstream, not countercultural, but in like Thailand or other places where, or you go to Angkor Wat, which people think of Cambodia as a Buddhist country, but all the frescoes are tremendous wars that the kings have had, where the military remained very, very powerful. Also in China, also in Japan. And India is a different story. I think India, some parts of northern India particularly, India became more gentle and got conquered, actually. So people lost track of the social achievement of the, of the making more gentle a culture. So now we're at a strange moment in history where the ladies are speaking up <laughs> some <Good>. places. <laughs> yeah. And both Jimba and I have partners who have taught us a thing or two, I would assume. She at least in our case, I know, and I yeah. believe in, Rim, in, in Rinpoche's case, yeah, in Jimba's case as well. And uh, therefore, the role of the monastic will change in that it will be a little less essential. And maybe what you're looking for, so I was very interested to learn what you're saying. Maybe the Tibetan thing would be where it's not such a disgrace to quit being a monk. Sure, sure. Like in Thailand or something where you can, you can develop monastic skills. Like monks will learn to sew. They'll have to wash their own dishes. They will yeah. take care of themselves <laughs> in a different way. So when they become husbands and parents, they'll be sharing more in these things it's in true. the household. And it could, maybe that happens in Thailand. Yeah. I hope so. And uh, certainly it will happen in any sort of Buddhist-touched America. Yeah. It has happened that in people I know, sort of Dharma people. So I think that Buddhism is in a position to be of service to the other religious traditions. And then there are some religious traditions that don't have a monastic thing. And then they are, can be sort of victimized, I think, by the militarism of the patriarchal societies in those religions. So, so they don't know necessarily, Christianity and Buddhism are particularly strong in the monastic side. And I think that could be important in the future. In a way, Buddhism is a, is a, is a kind of store of knowledge and social things, and especially mental phenomena. There will be a value to secular people, all kinds of people. And in that way, it will get along with all kinds of other traditions and ideologies. And hopefully support all of them. And um, that's at least, I, that is finally, I think, after 60 years of trying to learn from His Holiness. Because at first I was quite strong in favor of Buddhism over where I left, you know, which was a nominal Christianity, not non-practicing nominal Christianity. His Holiness convinced me that we have to think of all of them as trying to do the same thing, similar things, of being better, kinder, and all this, and of course, uh, uh, Geisela is complete. Geisela, that's what I go. Geisela. Geisela is uh, Dr. What? Geisela. It's a totally agrees with that. 
So I feel this is very, very interesting and important. And uh, a lot of Buddhist ex-monks may help the Me Too movement, let's say, in the world. <laughs> that would be a good thing. Talking of, um, you know, ex-monks. Um, What's that? Talking of ex-monks, it reminds me a nice story. There was a time when, um, you know, quite a lot of Tibetans immigrated to U.S. and many ex-monks were part of that. And I was told that uh, among the Tibetan ladies, they were really eager to seek a husband who was an ex-monk. <laughs> Because oh, the monks, really? you know, cool. unlike other late Tibetan men, monks have learned to look after themselves, you know, take care of ah. you know, cooking and doing the dishes. <laughs> yeah. More independence. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Really? That's really interesting. I didn't know that. No, no, it was uh, much sought after. <laughs> <laughs> that his holiness must have a biblical attitude. Yeah, no, exactly. Somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I'm sure he supports it, yeah. understands that. The fact that uh, Buddhism has some values that adapt a lot to people in all the world, like yes. mindfulness, uh, compassion, is it also very useful on a geopolitical uh, level because it uh, brings sympathy from all over the world uh, when we know the situation of uh, Tibet today? So is it also, not on purpose, but kind of a soft power? Yeah, soft power. Well, let me just say, let me follow a little bit of the direction I was going. Let me just add one other thing. I didn't quite finish the progression of that. In the current situation, although everybody has lost sight of that, and there were like Indian patriots who blamed Buddhism for making India vulnerable to the European conquest, and the, before that, the Iranian conquest and Arab conquest. And, and they sort of blamed the Buddhism for that because, you know, upstanding nations should have a big army. But actually, in the current situation, we can now see that big armies are actually a hazard in this world. And, and yet we're educated to think that we don't have an army or not a country. And yet we see that people who have armies, they tend to misuse them, don't they? And, and so where is the Me Too movement if it's going to be global going to go? It's, and oh, where is the planet going to go if we don't could dissolve in the nuclear war or whatever it may be? We demilitarization has to become a social skill for people, and to see to, to reach to review history even, and not necessarily see Julius Caesar conquering Gaul as the great thing, but rather Asterix and Obelix resisting Julius <laughs> Caesar as the greater thing. <laughs> you know, with with dogmatics and get a fix. The Druid, helping them do that. And here, Tibetan culture and Mongolian culture, in a way, and, and elements in Indian culture that, that, will, that will emerge whenever they're not under threat, as they usually are all the time, from their so neighbors created by colonialism. But uh, the, the natural gentleness, His Holiness, the religion of kindness, that's what everybody needs, isn't it? But not in the form of Buddhism but in the form of social changes within their own society. So not just the religions, in other words, but the societies have to change if we're going to survive on this planet. I'm afraid, I think. Don't you think? What do you think? Oh, definitely, yeah. Am I being um, too apocalyptic? No, 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 definitely. I mean, on the <laughs> geopolitical side, one of the key ideas in Buddhism is the importance of interconnectedness and interdependence. This is something that is now being appreciated. And primarily because of the climate issue, uh, environment, because environment science requires that we understand complex causation. 
And up until recently, complex causation was not that understood. And, and I would argue that this is one area where Buddhism has made a big contribution of, you know, bringing this concept of interdependence. Then um, the, the, another thing is that, you know, Buddhism, you know, is very powerful in drawing out the limitations of a material conception of happiness, consumption-based. You know, this Buddhism kind of emphasizes the quality of life rather than the standard yeah. of life. So those kind of, uh, and, you know, because this modesty in consumption need not necessarily mean less joy. So it's a, it's a recasting of what it means to lead a, live a happy life. So all of these are areas where Buddhism can really make a big difference. And on the, also on the geopolitical side, now in many parts of the world, particularly in the West, people are worried about what does the rising China mean? And China has historically been a Buddhist country. So I think Buddhism can play an important geopolitical role. Um, so I, I think those are important uh, kind of issues that, you know, Buddhism really can be tapped into as a way of dissolving conflicts, preventing, bringing a better perspective on how we handle uh, situations. Yeah. And do you think it's a, like a kind of a protection for Tibet to be so popular and uh, to make its values shine and be appreciable? Well, yeah, definitely, because, uh, you know, people everywhere associate Tibet with Buddhism. And uh, Buddhism, up until now, the track record of its contribution to the uh, greater world has been a good one. So um, I, I think, and also, you know, one advantage Tibet has is that Buddhism is not alien to China out of China's own heritage. And, as, you know, the longer China, as long as China values that part of their own cultural history, there's going to be a, a kind of a, a possibility of having some mm -hmm. empathy for yeah. the situation of the Tibetan people. So I think, you know, it can, for the Tibetans, it's, it's a plus. Wonderful. Would you, were you with me when, and His Holiness, when we went to Siti Shen's thing, when they consecrated the Vairochana statue around 1989, around that time. I think in you were In the upstate. Upstate. Yes, yes. Yeah, you I were there. there. I was there, yeah. So it just made me think of that. He was there as translator. Were you still a monk yeah. then? I think I you, was a monk, you were yeah. still a monk then. And um, we, His Holiness went to a Chinese temple in um, Putnam County, up the Hudson Valley okay. in New York, up the Taconic Parkway. And they consecrated the largest indoor Vairochana statue, or a particular Buddha statue, Um, and there are all kinds of Chinese monks from even Taiwan, I think, and even maybe mainland and from all over America and Canada were there. And uh, you were there as translator. I happened to just be there hanging out that one time. And, but what I remember is at one point His Holiness was in tears thinking about the deep faith of the Chinese people and their deep dedication to Buddhist, uh, Buddhism and the view of life that, uh, that Buddha taught and thinking how sad that they, they, you know, that, that they have been mobilized in the sort of communist imperialism, if you will. But he didn't use that term, but, yeah. you know, conquering Tibet and the Uyghur and the Muslim people and the, and the Mongolian people and, and whatever, you know, and wherever next they go. And uh, he was very, very, he was crying. I think, I don't know if you remember that, he was in tears being moved from his heart about the deep faith of the Chinese people. And I know he, he totally hoped all the time 
not only just to go back and, and, and console the Tibetan people in Tibet, but uh, if there should ever be a policy change in the imperium, uh, the Politburo Imperium in China, but also to bring back the spirituality of the Chinese people, which is mm. a huge, yeah. hundreds of millions of them yeah. are very deeply in love with the yeah. Buddha, Buddha vision of the way life is. They, they are. So there's and hope. They, they have to right. suppress that. Sure. Know. How do you see the um, Tibetan Buddhism in like 30 years? When the Dalai Lama well, won't be there. I'm, in 30 years, I'll be a young monk, probably it's a ritual <laughs> monk. I'll be running after you and a you'll be monk. professor someplace. <laughs> and uh, ready to close to retiring yeah, yeah, yeah. at that point. You know, I always try to get Gisela uh, uh, to um, apply to my chair. I have a chair that I created at Columbia. Yes. That's named after Tsongkhapa, the Jade Tsongkhapa chair, to, and who, which has the mission, which His Holiness uh, gave to it, of trying to supervise getting all these wonderful books from India that were translated and only preserved in Tibetan translation available again to the modern world. The, the library, of the, the cream of the library of Nalanda University, that was the great university in India. And um, Tom always, but he's, he loves his Canada. And, he, and also he has to serve and be ready to travel in a moment's True. notice. Yeah, you still travel so a lot. Can't, take a regular professorship, yeah. but I, I think he would be the ideal the candidate. The perfect one, okay. And I was always bugging him about it, <laughs> you know. Well, and, uh, I mean, in, in 30 years, um, I think the large part will re remain, uh, you know, depend upon how the traditional Asian Buddhist countries um, adapt to modernity. If the Asian Buddhist countries fail to adapt to modernity and we lose the younger generation's interest in the tradition, then that's the end. I think it, that's why I think this adaptation and modification of cultural aspects of Buddhism in the traditional Asian societies is going to be crucial. That includes Tibetan as well. I mean, Tibetan, I mean, one advantage Tibetans have is that there's, there's this central focus who's the Dalai Lama, personal Dalai Lama, that is the magnet, draws all the Tibetan people's kind of attention in 30 years' time, we will not have the present Dalai Lama, but they will be the next Dalai Lama. So mm -hmm. that, so long as the institution mm -hmm. survives, I think for the Tibetans, they have an advantage. But for the main other Asian countries, um, which has less of this kind of structure, I think it will depend very largely on how they adapt and how can they continue to inspire the younger generation. But for the outside world, I think Tibetan Buddhism will continue to remain a vibrant force Mm -hmm. because it's it's a very rich philosophy. It's the vision of life that it presents. It's very attractive. And the philosophical standpoint that Buddhism brings is kind of, you know, very adaptive. There's nothing inherently conflict with science. And, and also the vision of what it means to be human and what it means to live a happy life that Buddhism presents is very attractive, quite simple <laughs> and, and doable. So all of this, you know, for Buddhism's contribution to the broader world, I think it will remain vibrant because the texts will be there. There will be professors teaching in the different universities. There will be many Tibetan lamas who are running their own centers. But I, what I worry about is the survival of Buddhism in the traditional Buddhist countries. Let me make a prediction. I believe that Tibet will be honored itself in 30, by 30 years from now. And I believe that will happen in the lifetime of this 
fourth, grade 14 Dalai Lama. Uh, but it then will be developed more by the 15th. And uh, China will realize the futility of its current uh, plan to be the world emperor of the 21st century, which they've told publicly that they consider America was the emperor of the 20th and the <laughs> British the emperor of the 19th. And they plan to be the 21st. They say that publicly, they, and it's known that that's their plan. And uh, they call it the 100-year marathon. There are books that describe it in China's own language. And they will realize the futility of that, I believe. And they will invite uh, the Tibetan Buddhists back to Tibet. It will be considered like the jewel in the crown of China. It will be shared with India because culturally it has actually more connection to India. It's the source of all the rivers of Asia. If they melt down those glaciers, they're going to have one billion refugees running to find water between monsoons, which will be completely disrupted. But we have to realize the planet is not going to just tolerate people behaving as normal for the next 30 years. This area where we're sitting today will be wiped out in heat waves. There will be no uh, there will be no harvest here in 30 years unless there's dramatic change. And so one of the dramatic changes will be the return in Tibet and the, and the enshrinement there. And I predict a World Peace University of the UN in Lhasa oh, wow. or somewhere or <laughs> yeah. in the monastery. Wow. And that um, Tibet will be ser- able to serve more widely all around as being also itself. And, and the key point will be that what His Holiness the Dalai Lama has conducted for 60 years is, or 70 years, is a liberation movement without violence, relatively speaking. There was a little guerrilla struggle at the beginning, resistance, but he never called the country to rise. But not that, not that, I'm not against Ukraine, by the way, don't get me wrong. They, they have the right and the ability to do it, but Tibet did not. And he called that. So it's very important for the demilitarization of the planet, which we need all those resources to go into climate remediation all the trillions of dollars that are wasted in military now need to go into that in an urgent way. And uh, His Holiness will have succeeded in liberating a country without violence. And it will be liberated. It it may be part of a federation, United States of East Asia, whatever it may be, or maybe it'll just join the French. (laughs) It'll be with Macron, who knows? Les Etats-Unis de de, de l'Asie Orientale. And uh, that's where it will then be able to be like a lighthouse beacon again for the world, I think. Mm-hmm. I really do predict that. But I'm too humble of Thank a you, Tibetan yeah. personally to not <laughs> aspire to that. It's a dream for any Tibetan, of course. And I predict it will happen, actually. I really do. Because look at the failure of these idiot dictators, what they're doing today. I mean, they're just destroying themselves. Russia used to be a big empire. Now it's just going to go completely fragmented. It's going to be finished by that behavior. Nobody wants it, you know, in the world. And this will continue. Uh, If if China tries that, they'll have the same fate. They try to move into into the carcass of Russia, which is what they will do if it goes on like this, and if they go on like that. But that will fail. It's it's impossible in this century to dominate people in that way because people are too educated. There's too much... uh, AI won't allow sure, it. Sure. <laughs> so, let's hope. So I would like that prediction anyway. To conclude, um, 
briefly, if there is one thing uh, that could be done and would make the world a better place, yes. what would it be for each of you? Well, okay, one little thing. Uh, one of my dreams has been, I, I would like to make a, a Matrix-level special effects movie of the life of the Buddha. <laughs> But with Matrix-level special effects, the way the Tibetans tell the Buddha's life, Shakyamuni Buddha's life. That's been a goal of mine for many years. And uh, not just, you know, some guy wandering around in his sandals and then attaining enlightenment, and that's the end. Rather, because that's not the end, you know, he attains enlightenment only at 35 years of age. Then he's there for 35 and 40 more years trying to change the way the world is, which is the real, which is a bigger thing. And there's a lot of sort of miraculous elements in it and a lot of fun things, humorous things. And uh, I would really love to make such a film, actually, okay. really. I really love it. And uh, maybe it will or not. So that's one little thing. It's just a movie. Yeah. People will see it. <laughs> Easy <laughs> and simple. You're right. <laughs> you know, might have a big budget. Um, for me, I think one thing, um, one simple thing that people can do, I think being very conscious in the way in we, uh, we consume uh, okay. in everyday life. Mm. Um, sure. I think this is something that everybody can, because it depends on your level of consumption, where you are, your ability to afford things and stuff. But even in the poorer places, if you are conscious of the way in which you are consuming, not only does it have an immediate effect on the environmental impact, but the beautiful thing about it is that you will be doing it because of your sense of responsibility to the greater humanity and the world. That's what makes that conscious choice in the consumption very beautiful. It's not just so that the world is a better place, Why do you want the world to be a better place? Because it's a better place for all. So it brings in this sense of humanity along with it. And this is something that we can, and, and whatever it means, there's no one solution, but it, you know, each of us have to make that choice in our day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you, Bob and Jin Pai. It was really a pleasure to have you. I hope you enjoyed uh, being uh, an interview uh, together for <laughs> the first time after all these years of knowing I each really, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really did. Thank you. It's thank fun. you. It Kesala. Great Kesala. I can say yeah. Kesala. And great. now great. let's enjoy uh, Harvest so and Kaplan Thank, you. Kaya. thank yeah. you so much. And thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Rose. Yeah. Merci. 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 I hope you enjoyed this episode and the conversation with Bob Thurman and Dr. Jinpa, two former Tibetan monks and very close to the Dalai Lama. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram, Harvest Series. All of our podcasts are also filmed, so you can also visit youtube.com slash harvest series. Next episode will be with Jason Silva. He is an artist who is making short movies, passionate about technology. Don't miss the episode. Until next time. Mm -hmm.